0: Welcome to La Avenue CRC's Sermon Podcast. You are listening to Practicing Hope by Reverend Peter Yonker. This is the uh, second part of a two-week series on hope. Um, last week, I preached on Romans 5. For those of you who are here, you remember, and we talked about the source of our hope. Paul points, of course, to risen Jesus as a source of our hope. And today, as the sermon title suggests, I want to talk about practicing hope. How do we put hope into practice in the world? And for that, I'm going to turn to the book of Jeremiah and to an unusual story that I'm sure many of you have not heard. Jeremiah uh, 51, I will read verses 52 through 64, and that's found on page 1271 in your Pew Bibles. Jeremiah 51, verses 54, 50, excuse me, 52 to 64. And when I start reading, what we're reading here is the very end of a long prophecy that Jeremiah has delivered against Babylon. Listen. But the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will punish Babylon's idols, and throughout her land the wounded will groan. Even if Babylon ascends to the heavens and fortifies her lofty stronghold, I will send destroyers against her, declares the Lord. The sound of a cry comes from Babylon, the sound of a great destruction from the land of the Babylonians. The Lord will destroy Babylon. He will silence her noisy din. Waves of enemies will rage like great waters. The roar of their voices will resound. A destroyer will come against Babylon, and her warriors will be captured, and their bows will be broken. For the Lord is a God of retribution, and he will repay in full. I will make her officials and wise men drunk, her governors and officers and warriors as well. They will sleep forever and not awake, declares the king, whose name is the Lord Almighty. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Babylon's thick wall will be leveled and her high gates set on fire and the peoples exhaust themselves for nothing for the nation's labor is only fuel for the flames. This is the message Jeremiah the prophet gave to the staff officer, Sariah, son of Neriah, the son of Messiah, when he went to Babylon with Zedekiah, the king of Judah, in the fourth year of his reign. Jeremiah had written on a scroll about all the disasters that would come upon Babylon, all that had been recorded concerning Babylon. And he said to Sariah, When you get to Babylon, see that you read all these words aloud. Then say, Lord, you have said you will destroy this place so that neither people nor animals will live in it and it will be desolate forever. When you finish reading, the scroll, tie a stone to it, and throw it into the Euphrates, and then say, so will Babylon sink to rise no more, because of the disaster I will bring upon her, and her people will fall. The words of Jeremiah end here. This is the word of the Lord. In one of her sermons, one of her excellent sermons, Fleming Rutledge tells about a time she went to a screening of a documentary film series. The documentary was about the White Rose Movement, something that took place in Nazi Germany. Now, I'm guessing that most of you have not heard of the White Rose Movement. The White Rose Movement was a protest movement that went out against the Nazis. It came from deeply Christian people, deeply Christian young people, the people who led it were like 22, 23, 24, 25 years old, most of them university students. And out of their deep Christian convictions, they felt that what Hitler was doing was wrong, and they wanted to do something to fight against it. So what they started to do was write pamphlets, biblically-based pamphlets, which they distributed all over Nazi Germany to challenge Nazi rule. And these were secretly distributed, thousands of them went out, and lots of people knew about them. The movie focused on one of the leaders of the movement. Her name was Sophie Skoll. Sophie Skoll, along with her brother Hans, wrote most of the pamphlets. In 1943, she was arrested, along with her brother, and she was tried, and they were both executed, along with most of the young leaders of that movement. The movie celebrated their bravery, celebrated what they did, celebrated their lives. After the movie was done, because it was a kind of a premiere screening, they all, people all went into a room and they started a discussion about the movie. And people stood up and said various things at the discussion, they were all positive, they admired the bravery of these young students, they talked about the pamphlets and their biblical basis. But after the discussion had gone on a little while, a man stood up and offered a completely different opinion. He stood up and said, What good did any of this do? These people wrote a bunch of pamphlets and distributed them all over the country. Did that do any good at all? Did it save even one life in the war? Did it shorten the war even one day? It was a complete waste, this is all junk. And he walked out of the theater leaving it in stunned silence. What about that? Did they do any good? those young students trying to sow hope in a dark place. You might ask the same question of Jeremiah. In our passage, we hear about Jeremiah writing his own pamphlet. He doesn't write it against Nazi Germany. He writes it against Israel's mortal enemy, the Babylonians. The Babylonians who will come into Jerusalem and who will break down the gate of the city, who will break down the walls who will march through the streets, burning houses. The Babylonians, who will kill women and children, who will kill children in front of their parents. The Babylonians, who will go into the holy temple of God, knock it down, burn it, desecrate it, and shout the name of their God, Marduk, in the middle of the most holy place. Praise be to Marduk, he is the greatest God on earth. It's something God allows to happen because of Judah's sin. And most of the book of Jeremiah, if you read it, is pretty heavy, and it's warning Israel, warning Judah of what God is going to do because of her sin. Most of the prophecies of the book of Jeremiah are against God's people. But at the very end, Jeremiah offers one more prophecy, and this time it's not against Judah, this time it's against Babylon. We read the very end of that prophecy. It stretches all across chapters 50 and 51. And Jeremiah says very firmly, I think you got the sense from what I read, very firmly that Babylon will pay because of her violence, because of her cruelty, because of her injustice, because of what she did to the temple, because of her idolatry, because of her failure to acknowledge the one true God, Babylon will be utterly destroyed. That's Jeremiah's prophecy. He takes it and he writes it all down on a scroll. And then the interesting part starts. He has a friend who's a priest named Sariah, and he gives the scroll to Sariah, and he says, Sariah, I know you're going to Babylon. I want you to go into the middle of Babylon right in the middle of all the big buildings, you know, the temple, the hanging gardens, the palace of Nebuchadnezzar. I want you to go right into the middle of it, right by the shores of the Euphrates. I want you to take out the scroll and read it in that place of Babylonian power. And when you're done, I want you to tie a rock to it and throw it into the Euphrates. And so presumably that's what Sariah does. Goes into the middle of Babylon, stands by the river Euphrates, reads this terrible prophecy to the walls of Babylon, ties a rock to the scroll, throws it in the Euphrates River. Down it goes. Glub, glub, glub. All the way to the bottom. Such a strange thing to do. Now, you can kind of see what Jeremiah is doing, right? It's a, you can see it's kind of a protest act. It's kind of a resistance act. But you could ask exactly the same question of Jeremiah and what he does with his scroll as you could ask with Sophie Scholl and what she did with the White Rose Movement. Jeremiah, did this do any good, this pamphlet at the bottom of the river? Did it shorten the exile one day? Did it cause one Babylonian to repent? Did it save even one life? That's our sort of root question for today. What good, if any, did Jeremiah's act do? Was it really an act of hope? And it's an important question because it's one that faces us in our lives with our attempted deeds of hope every single day. We all know that we are called to be people of light out in the world to be light in the middle of the darkness. We're called to build the kingdom with our acts and we do it through big deeds and small deeds. Sometimes we go out and we attempt to to make great changes, to break down the systems of evil in the world. And sometimes we, we go out and we just do little tiny things, just acts of kindness and mercy and forgiveness in our own kitchen. But every day we go out and we do things for the kingdom, large and small. We know that's what we're called to do. And sometimes we wonder, does our little bit of kingdom work actually accomplish anything? Or are we just throwing scrolls into the river and watching them sink? You get involved in a mentoring program at church. You go to one of the local public schools and you start mentoring an at-risk child. She's seven years old, you commit to her for the year, and pretty early on in your mentoring, you realize she is really complicated. She's had a traumatic and difficult home life. She looks like she might be emotionally damaged, the way she reacts to certain things. it's, It's really difficult. You think she might have some learning disabilities, so many strikes against her already, but, but okay, you're gonna, you're gonna do it. You, so you sit down with her every week and you mentor her and you mentor her, and you do your best. But as you talk to her teacher and the leaders of the program, you realize she's not getting better, she's getting worse. And sure enough, towards the end of the year, there's a blow up at school and her parents yank her out of school and you won't see her anymore. And you wonder, Did I do any good here? Or did I just throw a scroll in the river and watch it sink? Glub, glub, glub. Or how about this? You come to church on Sunday morning. You made the mistake before church of of watching the news before you got up and left. And that that was a big mistake because... Before you even got into the car, you saw all the problems of the world laid there on the screen, and that tension we all get when we watch the news these days because of the divides and because of the stuff has already started to fill your heart. And maybe that's why you snap at your kids before they get in the car, because they're taking so long. So you say some harsh words to them, and that makes you, you and your wife, snap at each other, and then you have this long, rather quiet ride to church. And then you get to church, and you see all the homeless and and troubled people in the neighborhood, more problems that you're not sure how to solve. One of them tries to panhandle you in the parking lot. And then you sit down. And the minister is a sermon that just goes around in circles, and you can't follow it. It has nothing to do with your life. Two of the songs you sing, you, you can't hardly make head or tails of the melody, and they seem to go so slow. Your kids are wiggly and unengaged. And by the time you finally get home after the whole thing's done, you find you're absolutely exhausted. And then you just stop and you think for a moment. You think of all the resources, all the professional resources, all the volunteer resources that go into a church service and you wonder, is any of this doing anything? Is this accomplishing anything? Or are we just throwing scrolls into the river? watching them sink. So what about it? Is Jeremiah's action an act of meaningful hope or all our seemingly futile actions acts of meaningful hope? It all depends on where you think your help comes from. It all depends on where you think your hope comes from. If you think changing the world and making all things new and changing people is up to you and the skill of your actions and the intensity of your effort, if you think it's up to you to soften and change people's hearts and to bring justice, final justice in this world, then no, Jeremiah's act means nothing because no one has changed and it doesn't shorten the exile even one day. But if you live out of the hope that scripture proclaims, the hope that we proclaim in this place every single day, that our hope is in the name of the Lord who made the heavens and the earth, and our help is in the name of the Lord who made the heaven and the earth, then Jeremiah's strange act is deeply meaningful and deeply hopeful because what it does is in the midst of darkness and human powerlessness, it points to the one who can and will Make every crooked thing straight and make all things new. This is exactly how that scroll at the bottom of the Euphrates would have functioned for Israel. From a human perspective, sitting there at the bottom of the river in the silt, it wouldn't seem to be doing anything. But from God's perspective, what's happened? A seed has been planted in the heart of Babylon a seed of God's justice and righteousness and holy purpose that cannot fail to be accomplished. So Israel, while they're in exile, while they're sitting in Babylon, while they're feeling absolutely powerless, they can think of that scroll. They can remember it at the bottom of the river. And even though their human actions will have no power whatsoever to free them, they know that there's a seed planted by God that will certainly one day set them free. There in the middle of the river, in the middle of the city, God has planted a seed. And sure enough, about 60 years later, the Persians sweep into town and Babylonian power is destroyed and God does everything he promised. That scroll doesn't actually do anything from a human perspective except point to the one who will do everything on behalf of his people. In fact, when you think of it that way, that scroll reminds you of something else that God did about 600 years later. Another seed that he planted, this time in the middle of death. Jesus comes into the world and he allows himself to be thrown into the river. The river of death. And he sinks all the way to the very bottom of that river. And it looks like the end of hope, but it's not. Because in the middle of creation, in the middle of sin, in the middle of evil, God has planted a seed. And on Easter morning, that seed begins to sprout. And that seed will continue to grow and fill the earth until every knee shall bow and every tongue confess and every broken thing shall be made new. It's not about the power of our actions and the power of our hopes. It's about the power of the one who is able to make everything new, and who will. And let that shape the way we practice our hope. We will continue to go out and work for justice, work for righteousness in this world. And sometimes those those things that we do will bear instant fruit. Kind of like Peter in Acts 2, right? Peter goes out, preaches a sermon at Pentecost, 2,000 people are converted. Instant fruit. Only five chapters later, something exactly the opposite happens. This time, it's Stephen, and he stands up in front of a great crowd at the Sanhedrin and testifies to God's work with him. This time, no one's converted, and Stephen gets stoned to death. We go out, we do our acts of justice and righteousness and mercy and love, and sometimes they bear fruit, and sometimes it seems like they just sink to the bottom of the river. But when they point to the one who will make all things new. They are never in vain. They are always light in the darkness. It reminds me of the life of Eric Liddell. Do you remember that name? If you know that name, you probably know it from Chariots of Fire. Eric Liddell was the guy, the the sprinter from Chariots of Fire. And as you know, I think, probably, in that movie, Eric Liddell was a Scottish guy, 1924 Olympics, His favorite race, his dominant race, was the 100 meters, but when he got to the Olympics, he found out it was on Sunday, and he said, I'm not running. Didn't want to violate his conscience on the Sabbath. And instead, a couple days later, he ran the 400 meters, which wasn't a race that he knew how to run very well, hadn't run it very often, did it, won the gold medal. There's the incident results, right? You know, you do this faithful thing, and boom, you get a gold medal, like three days later. If only it always worked that way. I wonder how many of you know the end of Eric Liddell's life. He became a missionary, went to China. During the Second World War, the Japanese came into China, as you know, and Eric Liddell ended up in a Japanese internment camp, which was a cruel and difficult place. Interestingly enough, it is the same internment camp that Langdon Gilkey wrote about in his book, The Shantung Compound, which is an amazing book, and I know most of you don't know it. The Shantung Compound was a book about Gilkey's experience in the same Japanese internment camp. Now, Gilkey's book is about how people react when they're under pressure. What happens when they're deprived? What happens when they're in crisis? What does that do to their their morality? And and it's really a book about total depravity because what Gilkey finds is that 99% of the people, when they're in an internment camp in a, a situation of deprivation, they become nasty. They become selfish. They deceive themselves. And what Gilkey finds is that some of the worst are the ministers and the missionaries because they're just as selfish as everybody else except that they baptize that with Bible verses and piety. It's a really depressing book. (laughs) But but I'm not leaving you there. (laughs) I said 99%. So most of these these missionaries, these good Christian people were selfish and self-centered. The one exception is Eric Liddell. In a place of darkness and what looked like hopelessness, Eric Liddell practiced Christian hope. Here's how Tim Keller describes Gilkey's account of what Liddell did. The other missionaries and clergy in the camp were fully as selfish and ungenerous as others, and in many cases more so because they often accompanied their behavior with sanctimony. That's what I just said. But Liddell was different. Gilkey makes a startling statement about him. It is rare indeed when a person has the good fortune to meet a saint, but he came as close to it as anyone I've ever known. Liddell was especially concerned to minister to the teenagers of the camp. He cooked for them, supervised their recreation, and poured himself out for them. More than anyone else there, he was overflowing with humor and life and love and hope and inward peace. Eric Liddell died in that camp. He got a brain tumor and died. All the ornery ministers survived and he died. And maybe that seems like a waste, like nothing was accomplished. But to me, the second act of Eric Liddell's life was at least as glorious as the first, and maybe more so, because when it seemed there was no hope, he pointed to the one in whom our hope lies. Congregation, go out into the world, practice your hope. Do your big things, do your little things, do them in the face of tremendous darkness and know that you're doing them in the power of an unshakable love that cannot be stopped. Do justice, love kindness, walk humbly with your God. Speak the name of Jesus with joy and boldness to the people around you. Let your life point to the one who will make all things new. Amen. Lord God, the reason we come into this place is to, to let our small and uncertain lives feel the overwhelming weight of your love and your purpose for this world and to be renewed in our hope, to be renewed in our confidence so that we can do the stuff in our families and so we could do the stuff in our communities so we can participate in this great work that you are doing by your power and your glory. Lord, let us be practitioners of your good hope this week, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Grave Avenue CRC's Sermon Podcast.